0: King Jesus, who is worthy of highest praise, knows the true condition of people's hearts and weeps. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. I wonder whose agenda for your life are you living for today? Whose will are you following? Is it your desires, your will, your agenda, or is it God's desire, God's will, God's agenda? You know, I know that, that God's will, God's agenda is not always easy for us, but what I do know is is that it is always better. It's not always easy, but it is always better. And it may not seem like it at times, Right? when it's hard when god turns up those flames of refining in our lives and our character right but god's agenda god's will is always better than our own well today then we continue our series here unique the life death and resurrection of jesus christ you know you have probably heard that term christmas in july right christmas in july well we're not celebrating christmas in july today but What we are celebrating, though, is this, Palm Sunday in September, Palm Sunday in September. You know, the people had great expectations for the Messiah. They had an agenda for him, an agenda for Messiah. They wanted him to cast the Romans out of their land and to restore the nation to greatness. And so they would cry out to him, Hosanna, save us, save us. But they had a political salvation in mind. But Jesus, however, had a far greater salvation in mind. He would indeed save the people, but his salvation would be an eternal salvation from a far greater enemy than Rome. And his salvation would deliver them and us from our greatest enemy, which is sin and eternal condemnation. He would save not just the people in those days, but a great and vast multitude of people from all time throughout all of human history. You see, God's agenda that day was far greater and better than any agenda that the people had for him. Now, you know, I know there might be some of us here who might be tempted to shake our heads a little bit and just ask, how could those people have such a limited view or understanding of who Jesus, the Messiah, was? We might like to think that we would have seen him and seen his mission much more clearly than those folks did. But I have to be honest with you, I doubt had I lived back then and I had heard and seen Jesus I doubt that I would have understood his mission any better than many of those people in the crowds did. How about you? Do you think you would have understood his mission better? Would you have understood his agenda? Would you have better understood the nature of this salvation he was bringing? Would you have understood that his agenda was far better? I know I probably wouldn't have. But what about today? What about today, right here this morning? Do you believe that God's agenda for you is better than the agenda that you have for yourself? We all say, yes, I I agree. But when it gets hard, do we really believe that? That's the test, isn't it? That's the challenge. So we continue then today, Unique, the Life, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a series which is a harmony of the Gospels. We are taking the Gospel accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and putting them all together in one flowing chronological order as suggested in this book, One Perfect Life by John MacArthur. Today then, we are looking at the triumphal entry with a harmony of Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. And what is the big idea? What is the main point I want us to take away from this today? Well, that is this, that King Jesus, King Jesus, who is worthy of highest praise, knows the true condition of people's hearts and weeps. King Jesus knows, who's worthy of highest praise, knows the true condition of people's hearts and weeps. Before we look at our text here, a little context, Jesus has journeyed to Jerusalem for the final time in his earthly ministry. He was anointed in Bethany by Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And as Jesus goes to Jerusalem for this final time, He knows that he will soon be going to the cross where he will willingly give his life as a sacrifice for sin. On this journey to Jerusalem, he would clearly present himself as Messiah or Savior to the nation. Now, the religious rulers, the authorities, they all wanted to kill him, but they were also fearful of him they were fearful of his popularity among many of the people. But Jesus was in sovereign control of all that happened to him, down to that very day, even that very hour on which he would die. And that he would die exactly on the Passover day as the lambs were being sacrificed for Passover. He the perfect lamb would be sacrificed for us. Let's look here at this first section here of our Harmony of the Gospels. We're told, The next day Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her, on which no one has sat. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there, the owners, said to them, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him just as Jesus had commanded. And so they let them go. First, we see some instructions. Jesus gives some instructions to his disciples here. It is interesting to note that up until this point, Jesus had not sought to openly be called the Messiah. Now, he was the Messiah. He never hid that from people, but he never encouraged people to Proclaim him as Messiah. He would sometimes tell them, Do not say that. Why would he do such a thing? He's the Messiah. Why didn't he want people right from the start to know that? Well, because he knew the agenda that people had for him, and he knew what his own better agenda was that he was on a mission, and he had a timetable to fulfill. But now here, starting this way, we see Jesus very clearly and publicly presenting himself as the Messiah and being openly called Messiah. Here he's encouraging it and even seeking it because everything he did then over the course of these days was designed to call attention to the fact that he was and he is indeed the Messiah that the nation had been waiting for. He was at that time in the in the town of Bethany and very close to Bethany was another little town called Bethphage and both of them, they were just a couple of miles or so from Jerusalem and it was at this point then here near Bethphage where he stops and he begins to prepare for what how he was going to enter the city. He wasn't just going to walk into the city the way he would have at other times. But there was a special way that he was going to enter into the city. The disciples were instructed to go into a village nearby, most likely Bethphage, where they would find a donkey tied up there along with a colt, a colt on which no one had sat. They were to untie them and bring them to Jesus. And if anyone tried to stop them, to simply say, the Lord has need of them. By the way, I do not recommend that if the next time you go on a shopping trip, if you go to Walmart or something, just to help yourself to a bunch of stuff and walk out and say, the Lord has needed it. That probably wouldn't work in that instance. But it did work in this case. Why? Because God had sovereignly arranged it for that to work that way. So some wonders, well, had Jesus already made arrangement with the owners or was this some supernatural knowledge that, that he knew? And the answer, we don't know. But at any rate, we knew he was not going to have any trouble securing them. But if they simply said the Lord has need of them, they would let, let him them have them. So he was told then to get this, this they were told to get this colt on which no one has sat. Why is that? Well, because the Jewish people regarded animals that had never been ridden on as being especially suited for holy purposes. And this colt on which no one had ever ridden, would indeed serve a holy purpose that day. It would serve a holy purpose as he would be the humble transportation for Jesus the Messiah to enter Jerusalem, presenting himself as their Messiah King. We're told then next that they brought the donkey and the colt to Jesus, laid their clothes on, him, on them, and they set Jesus on the colt. And all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Fear not, tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him, And that they had done these things to him. So we see here then a fulfilled prophecy. A fulfilled prophecy. In commanding his disciples to bring them the donkey and the colt, he was fulfilling the prophecies found in Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, which predicted that Messiah would come to his people on a colt, the full. Of a donkey. Now, why would Messiah, this great conquering king Messiah, why would he come on a donkey and, in fact, a young colt on which no one had ever ridden? Why not a great stallion? Isn't that the way a great conquering hero and king should come into a city on a stallion? He will the second time. He will the second time. There you go. That's a good, excellent point, Tony. Yeah, he is coming on a stallion the second time. All right. But the first time he didn't come on a stallion, the first time he came on this lowly donkey, a colt. Why? Because it was a symbol of his humility. How he had humbled himself, was coming as their humble king. As Tony rightly pointed out, he is coming again, but he's not going to be on a donkey this time. He is going to be on a stallion, right? Right? And everyone will know, right? So why the young cult? Because it was emphasizing his humble nature and the mission that he had come to do to save the lost. We're told that his disciples, they didn't understand this. They didn't understand these things as they were happening. You know, I think that happens often to us, doesn't it? Sometimes when God is working in our lives, sometimes we don't always understand at that moment what God is doing or the significance of that, and later we look back and, ah, we see now what God was doing or why God did it that way. So it says they did not understand at that time, but when he was glorified, that is after the resurrection, and then with the coming of the Holy Spirit, then they remembered these things and understood. In fact, we will see just coming up just, just a few days from this, this moment here, Jesus is going to be speaking to his disciples in the upper room, and he will tell them this promise in John 14. He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So they didn't understand why Jesus was doing this exactly. But later they would, after the resurrection, with the coming of the Holy Spirit and this promise of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to them in which he would teach them and bring to remembrance all of these things that he had said and done. So now Jesus has this cult here. We're told next, and a very great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And therefore, the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness and for this reason the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign the pharisees therefore said among themselves you see that you are accomplishing nothing look the whole world has gone after him then as he was now drawing near the descent of the mount of olives The whole multitude of the disciples who went before and those who followed began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. The people took palm trees, palm branches, and cut them, and we're waving those. And you might why, go, why, why that? Well, because palm trees were a symbol of the nation. So waving these palm branches was an act of patriotic and nationalistic fervor. You know, it might be a little bit like if you went to a, a parade today, and you wanted to show your support and your love for our country, what might you wave? A flag, right? People waving flags at parades. That's what this was like. In fact, even to this day, a symbol of Israel, if you look at coins from Israel, often as you will see a palm branch on it. The palm it was a symbol of the nation. Waving those palm branches was rejoicing in what they wanted, what the glory of the nation that they wanted Messiah to bring to them spreading their clothes on the road. What is that? Well, that is something that people would do to honor royalty. I think that seems a little odd. But did you know for a, a lot of people in those days, that, that especially among the, the poorer people, that sometimes the most valuable thing people had were their clothes. And so when you were putting those out there like that, it was honoring, it was taking the most valuable thing that you had and laying it down before them. So the Pharisees see all of this and they're dismayed because it looked as if to them, as if the whole world now was going after this man they thought to be a blasphemer and a deceiver who was a great threat to their place of position and the nation. Look what he is going to bring down on our nation. How are the Romans going to react to this? The people cried out, though, with rejoicing and praise to God for all the mighty works that they had seen Jesus do. They shouted, Hosanna! Hosanna to the Son of David! Hosanna means save now! Save us! Save now, Messiah! Son of David was a term for the Messiah. Why? Because Messiah was prophesied to be a descendant of David, King David, the one who would sit on the throne of David forever. Hosanna, son of David. Save us now, Messiah, King. Deliver us from Rome. The people were eager for Jesus to save them in that sense, to bring the kingdom but they misunderstood the nature of the kingdom at this time. Is there a great political kingdom coming? Yes, there is. Till kingdom come, that he's right, right. There is, but not before this kingdom, this spiritual kingdom that Jesus was bringing. Some of the Pharisees were calling to Jesus to rebuke his disciples. Why? Because the people were joyfully acknowledging him as Messiah. And to the Pharisees, what? He's a blasphemer. He's a deceiver. He's going to destroy our nation. Tell him to be quiet. Stop that, Jesus now the people misunderstood Jesus' agenda at that time, but they were certainly right to acknowledge him as Messiah, weren't they? So the Pharisees wanted him to quiet, quiet him down. Don't let them say that. This is going to lead to nothing but trouble. But Jesus replied that if they were to be silent, even the rocks themselves would immediately cry out. What a joyful scene! What a joyful scene this was for the people. Not so much for the Pharisees, but the other people it was, right? How do you think you would have acted had you been there? Would you be excited? Would you be crying out with those shouts of praise, Hosanna, save us now, son of David? I probably would have. A joyful scene. Shouts of acclamation. But in spite of all of that joy and that acclamation in people's hearts and lips, Jesus knew the true heart's desires and motivations of the people. So we shouldn't be surprised then at what he did next. We're told, now as he drew near, he saw the city And wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you. And your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. There's all these shouts of acclamation. Joy, happiness. And there is Jesus weeping weeping over the city. Now, no doubt, there were true believers in Jesus in the crowd that day, but Jesus knew all the people's hearts. He wept over the city. Why? He wept over the city because so many were rejecting him. Even as they were receiving him, they were rejecting him because they had their own agenda in mind. The leadership of the nation rejected him and was actively seeking to kill him. The crowds that were shouting Hosanna to him had their own agenda, and many of them would turn against him in a matter of days. And so instead of shouting Hosanna, they would shout what? Crucify him. Crucify him. Why? Because he disappointed them in their expectations. See, Jesus knew the true condition of people's hearts. He knew it then. He knows it today. He knows the hearts of all people today. He knows the hearts of every one of us in this room today. He knows the hearts of everyone listening out there. And Jesus wept because of what he saw. And he wept because he knew what lay in store shortly for the city. He prophesied and said, days will come when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, close in on you on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. This devastating prophecy was fulfilled only 40 years later in AD 70 when the Romans did in fact do all of that when they destroyed the city and the Jewish people were scattered all over the world for the next nearly 2,000 years you know earlier in Jesus ministry he had told his disciples who were so impressed with the temple complex that not one stone of it would be left in place. And here he repeats that prophecy. John MacArthur says this about this prophecy. He says, this is precisely the method used by Titus when he laid siege to Jerusalem in AD 70. He surrounded the city on April 9th, cutting off all supplies and trapping thousands of people who had been to Jerusalem for the Passover. The Romans systematically built embankments around the city, gradually starving the city's inhabitants. The Romans held the city in this manner through the summer, defeating various sections of the city one by one. The final overthrow of the city occurred in early September. The Romans utterly demolished the city, temple, residences, and people. The few survivors were carried off to become victims of the Roman circus games and gladiatorial bouts. Do you understand now why Jesus wept when he looked at the city? The city that was shouting Hosanna to him. He wept. Because he knew their hearts, true conditions, and what lay ahead. By the way, there's a famous... uh, structure in Rome and from ancient Rome called the Colosseum. Any of you have seen that? Do you know how the Romans funded the building of the Colosseum? From the treasury of the temple in Jerusalem. Do you understand why Jesus wept when he looked at the city? Also, by the way, I've told you this before. I want to share it again. You know, when I was Given that privilege of visiting Israel some years ago, there were many awe-inspiring moments. But one day our group was seated on the steps of what was once the western entrance to the temple complex. And the steps there are the original steps dating back to Jesus' day. And we sat there and we listened to our devotional instruction and were then told to, Stand up from there and then walk around this particular way, So walk around a corner. And we were told that we would see something that had been unearthed by archaeologists in the 1960s, so very recently. And this is what we saw. We think, oh, okay, a big pile of rocks. So what? Well, those aren't just any old rocks there. You see, those rocks, those are the stones from the temple in Jesus' day. Those stones were torn down by the Romans and thrown over the side of the temple mount in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy that not one stone would be left on top of another. And so, far from being just a big pile of rocks, what you are looking at there is the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy as well as a powerful moment of reflection. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants? You have perfected praise. So when he had looked around at all things, he left them and went out of the city to Bethany as the hour was already late, and he lodged there with the twelve. So here we see healing and observation. Jesus went into the city. He proceeded to the temple where he would teach and heal people. The blind and the lame came to him and he healed them out of compassion but also in fulfillment of scriptural prophecies about the ministry of the Messiah. But once again, the religious rulers are not at all happy with Jesus. Do you hear what they're saying to you? They're calling you Messiah. But Jesus answers their complaints with scriptures and he said to them, yes, have you never read we like to say sometimes when people are you know, criticizing something about what Christians teach or, or, or believe, and they'll say, what? Have you read the scriptures, right? That's what Jesus is saying. Have you read the scriptures? But next there's a statement there in the text that would be easy to overlook. But I think it's important. It says, so when he hood, when, So when he had looked around at all things... He left them and went out of the city. It might be easy just to kind of skip past that, but think about that. When he had looked around at all things, do so you think, was that in the way that maybe a tourist might go to a city and just look around at all things? Is that what he was doing when he was looking around at all things? No, what was he doing when he was looking around at all things? It was what he was observing. He was Preparing to judge. Because he saw everything that was happening. He was looking around at all things with an eye toward judgment. And he would go away briefly, but then he would come back in judgment. Do you think he's looking around at all things now? Preparing for the day when he will come back in judgment? Now, are you sure about that? you sure that's what he was doing? What do you think? He says, when he looked around at all things and then he left the city, are you sure he was looking around in the sense that he was seeing that which needed judgment? Yeah, I think so. Why? Come back next week and you'll see why. Because right? that's exactly what happens. let want uh, to talk for just a moment here about human agendas and divine agendas. See, the crowd had an agenda. The crowd had its desires, what they wanted their Messiah to do for them. And their agenda emphasized what? A political freedom, not a spiritual freedom, but political freedom, and also what? A a temporal, earthly glory. A here and now kind of glory. But Jesus had a different agenda for them. What was his agenda? It was not a political freedom. It was what? True freedom. Spiritual freedom wasn't a political salvation. It was a spiritual salvation. And he did not have in mind temporal, earthly glory. He had in mind eternal, heavenly glory. The crowd's agenda for Jesus that day, his agenda, something very different. But I want to ask, in light of that, do you think that we're any different today from that crowd? Or might we have our own agendas for ourselves, and what we want Jesus to do for us? Think about that. What what is what is the agenda you would have God do for you in your life? Maybe something like this: Oh, comfort, being comfortable, Uh, convenience, not being troubled by things. How about pleasant circumstances? good relationships by the way is there anything wrong with pleasant circumstances and good relationships and and all is anything wrong with those things no there's there's not so what's the problem well the problem is is when we set that for and and that's what we want we want that at all costs that's what we want we want pleasantry we don't want problems and challenges So we want comfort, we want convenience, we want pleasant circumstances. That's oftentimes our agenda for ourselves, right? But you see, God has a different agenda. Now, his agenda may, at times, may very well include pleasant circumstances. I guarantee you, eternally speaking, his agenda is very pleasant circumstances for all of us, isn't it? But right here, right now, In this life, in this world, in these bodies, we're not always going to have pleasant circumstances, are we? We're not always going to be comfortable. Things aren't always going to be convenient for us. Because God has a different agenda for us right now. What is his agenda right now? Well, first off, I'd summarize it with two words. His glory. See, God receiving honor and praise and glory through our lives and through what he does in our lives. You may think, well, God, can't you be glorified by giving me really pleasant circumstances? And the answer is yes, he can, and he does that sometimes, right? But he's also glorified in how he works in the painful circumstances of our lives, right? So his agenda is, first off, his glory, not our comfort, not our convenience. His glory his agenda for you, for me, if you're a believer in Jesus, it's your sanctification. Anyway, Christ-like character, Christ-like conduct. See, that's God's agenda for us. And yes, there may be seasons in our lives that are pleasant. I don't want, does anybody want miserable circumstances? No. And God does not want that for us forever and ever, does he? No. No. But for a time, his agenda for Christ-like character and Christ-like conduct and his glory is more important than our temporary comfort or pleasure. Christ-like character, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, Christ-like conduct, righteousness, purity honesty integrity fulfilling the purposes that he's given us in our life making disciples worshiping in spirit and truth all these things that are those things we do that honor him the good works that he has created for us that we might walk in them not our comfort not our pleasantry but his glory. And the image of Jesus in us. And that's hard sometimes, isn't it? That's hard work being molded into the image of Jesus Christ, isn't it? So what? I do. As King Jesus, who is worthy of highest praise, knows the true condition of people's hearts, including every one of us here. And he weeps. So I wonder. Whose agenda, whose agenda are you following? Yours or God's? As I said at the beginning, you know, the God's agenda is not always easy, but it is always better. And my experience tells me it takes time for us to really learn that and understand that, doesn't it? You know, I've told you before when, when I was about nineteen years old, I had my life Mapped out decade by decade, age and stage of life, right? Who, who believes that? Every hand should go up in this room, right? I had my life all mapped out. I had my plan for, for my 20s, my 30s, my 40s, how, how everything was supposed to go, right? I even had my kids named the whole thing, right? And then I presented it to God and said, here you go, God, bless it. How do you think that worked out? You know what? He did bless me, but not in the way I was uh, thinking it was going to happen, right? See, God had other other plans. He had a different agenda, and I got to tell you, there were some very, very painful, I'm not going to say days, there were painful years in that. Do I regret it? No. So whose agenda are you following? His agenda is not always easy. But it is always better. And by the way, the alternative, it's not like, well, because it's difficult, I'd rather have my own agenda. Is your agenda easy, always easy, either? No. In fact, actually, it, tends to make, it makes life harder, doesn't it? So whose agenda are you following? Also, we so, say, you know, Jesus, he is worthy of highest praise. Is, is your heart full of praise? Is your heart full of praise for your king, your Savior, your Deliverer. I ask, following the example of our our Savior, our King, do you weep? Do you weep for the city? Do you see what's going on around us? Do you see the condition of people's hearts? Do you see our society? Do you see our world? Do you weep for our world? And do you want to be on board with God in addressing that? See, one of the challenges I had in in my youth was I struggled with I I argued with God a lot. Uh, I don't do that anymore. I never won, not once. (laughs) Now, I don't limp like Jacob, but I've got a spiritual limp in me, you know? So I don't recommend wrestling. I don't recommend arguing with God. Well, actually, it's okay, if I, because sometimes that's a part of the process God uses to grow us, right? But one of the things I really argued with God was, is I was just so, and understandably and rightly so, so painfully burdened by the way the world is. God, why why the, the problem of evil and suffering and all of that? And then one day, one, one, one fateful, fateful day, the... God spoke to my heart and He said, Do you want to be part as you weep for the city? Do you want to be part of the problem or part of the solution? So when we weep for the city, what are we doing? We're getting on board with God and we're being part of the solution to the problem. He is the solution, right? So how are we a part of the solution? By getting on board with him and his agenda. Taking the gospel and the good news to people because that's the solution. Taking the gospel to lost people and a lost society that desperately needs to hear that. Let's pray. Father, thank you that... We have a Messiah, the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has saved us in every way that a person can be saved. Lord, forgive us for those times when we are selfish and and, and wanting to impose our own agenda on our lives. Speak to us today, Lord mold and meld our hearts and minds to desire your agenda above all else. Your glory, the knowledge of you, knowing you, and being conformed to the image of Christ. May that be our agenda. And may we give you the praise that you are justly due. And may we get on board, Lord, with the compassion you have for the lost. And be part of the solution in proclaiming the gospel to people who desperately need to hear and we ask all of these things in Jesus name Amen Thanks for listening to today's message For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church visit wlbiblechurch.org